Hello, my name is Candy Chambers, and I would like to welcome all of you to episode one of the DE Talk podcast. This podcast will be broadcast on a monthly basis, and we will be talking to some of our DE members, partners, and other industry experts, such as Haley Moss, who we have with us today. With October being National Disability Employment Awareness Month, we really wanted to hit home with invisible disabilities, which I have as well, and start a conversation about workplace obstacles, triumphs, the autism community, and how you found yourself, Haley, to now be an advocate for neurodiversity and therefore giving those around you a voice. So Haley, I first want to thank you for joining us today. Um, I got the pleasure of meeting Haley at our annual meeting and conference in Naples, Florida in May this year. And I, I just have to say, you had such a presence on stage. We had Haley in a general session with the director of the OFCCP, Craig Lean, that she knew um, from Coral Gables, where he used to live. And then we gave her a concurrent session where it was standing room only. So I think you really um, developed a, a strong following, Haley, at um, our annual meeting. So for many people who have yet to meet you, can you give us a little backstory to catch everyone up? Absolutely. And thank you again, Candy, and everyone at DE for having me today and for also giving me the opportunity to speak at the annual meeting back in May. I had a wonderful time. And I'm so grateful for all the different people that I've met and getting to talk about autism, neurodiversity, and all of that stuff with everybody and Director Lean as well. So a little bit about me. I am out of Coral Gables, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami. I am a practicing attorney at Jupano Patricius down here. I work in anti-terrorism and international law matters mostly. So the easy way to describe what I do in my day job is I go after bad guys such as drug cartels and terrorists and help work on collecting their money for, for victims of terrorism, which is pretty cool. It sounds really awesome to say at a cocktail party type thing. And, but what really gets me excited every day is autism advocacy. So I was diagnosed with autism when I was three years old. I first spoke about autism on a stage similar to the annual meeting when I was 13. I was on a panel where I was the only girl and I was fresh out of middle school and was sharing my life experiences. And that's actually when I got into contact with a book publisher and lo and behold a couple of years later I wrote my first book then I wrote another book and went to college at the University of Florida then I went to law school after that and now as you know I've passed the bar exam I'm practicing law and that story went viral which was really cool after getting sworn into the bar and at this point in my life I like to do anything I could to help raise awareness, acceptance, and to amplify the voices of other autistic people and those around me because it is such a vast community and needs all the help we can get in many different aspects of our lives. And especially as we're talking today, we're focusing on employment. Thank you, Haley. You know, you hit on several topics that I wanted to actually talk a little bit more about. Let's go back first and talk about um, your parents. And I know you're very close to your folks, as as I always was too. Um I know that they related your diagnosis and how it made you special to Harry Potter's scar. Um, how do you connect with this and, and, and view that as a positive com component of, of who you were at that time? And how did that help you moving forward? You are right that I'm definitely really close with my, fa my family and my parents, especially. I go home every couple weekends. I'm actually <laughs> going home this weekend. So my parents are very excited to see me. Oh, and good. when they first 
told me about autism, I was nine years old. And nine-year-old me was obsessed with Harry Potter. <laughs> and I also connected to Harry Potter because we shared the same July 31st birthday as the J.K. Rowling. So it was kind of this instant connection. It was almost like meant to be in a way. And nine-year-old me was obsessed with Harry Potter, as I mentioned. And my mom sits me down one day during summer break. And she starts explaining to me how I'm different and have magical powers like Harry Potter. And <laughs> nine-year-old me, of course, totally buys into this. And nine-year-old me is listening. And she goes, like, Harry, you're different from the muggles, but different isn't good or bad it's just different and different can be extraordinary and instead of focusing on the negatives and the things that may be difficult with autism we actually talked about the strength so my parents believe and I believe this too is most people are aware of the things that are hard for them most people know what their weaknesses are but not everyone is told what they're good at all the time or what their strengths are so even when we think about being at work we're told more often than not what we're doing wrong or what we need to improve on rather than you're a superstar so even when we look at it from that lens, being told that you're a superstar type compliment of you have a great memory, you're really compassionate, you're really creative, all of these things when you hear this when you're nine, it really helps build your self-esteem. I was also a really confident kid because I always believed that I was the cool one and everybody else was kind of strange. <laughs> While most autistic people I know have this understanding or belief that they are very different and everybody else is excluding them or anything, I always thought it was the other way around. So... I think having the Harry Potter connection also helped me have that high self-worth and, and self-esteem that continued out throughout my life. And I also just saw autism as one of my many strengths. And the reason why a lot of the things that I was good at, it was kind of a great explanation for me to understand why I was good at certain things. Well, I think, it, honestly, I think your, your parents did some amazing things, but I think they had a lot to work with to, <laughs> to start with anyway. So, um, you know, it's interesting. The, the term neurodiversity is a relatively new term. I know when I was working uh, with the autism community, for instance, when I was um, in Ohio still before I came to direct employers, the term neurodiversity wasn't really even used. So it is, it is relatively new, and I don't think that there's a lot of HR professionals that really truly understand it. Can you give us a better definition of, of what neurodiversity really means and who all that would encompass? I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what neurodiversity actually entails. So technically speaking, all of us are neurodiverse from each other. But we still use neurodiversity and neurodivergence generally to describe people who have brains that are different from the norm. So neurodiversity as a concept is that all of our brains are different and that it's a natural human variation that should be accepted and respected. Just like we all have different ethnicities and genders and sexual orientations and other disability statuses, all these other things that make us who we are, we all have different brain profiles. So that's when this idea of neurodivergence kind of comes in. So people whose brain profiles differ, and that includes autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, certain psychiatric disabilities, brain injuries, etc., is anything that would make your brain function outside of the norm. And a lot of these neurological differences are to be respected and all of that. And what I think gets messed up with neurodiversity, and I notice this a lot in the circles that I travel in, is people assume that it just means autism. Yeah. And that it's just this, but I never felt that way, and I don't think it does. And I think about my friends who have ADHD or Tourette's syndrome or intellectual disabilities who often are neurodivergent and that get left out of this neurodiversity conversation when it very much needs to include them too. 
wow, <laughs> we're, we're sitting here looking at each other going, wow, we all just really learned something. I mean, I, I, I had never heard it described that way. And, and unfortunately, Haley, I, I always connected it with autism. And you really have, have taught me a lot, and I'm sure a lot of the mm-hmm. listeners as well. That, that was really important, I believe. A lot of people do connect it with just autism because a lot of the hiring initiatives out there seem to revolve specifically around autism and neurodiversity because what we see in a lot of autistic people are traits that are desirable for companies, such as the pattern seeking, the attention to detail, things like that. And then I worry with that as well, as great as it is because autism has such a high unemployment rate generally. Mm. I worry about how are we supporting people who have more support needs who might also have intellectual disabilities. So I think that's great that you want the technology geniuses, but what about somebody who might not be able to be independent that still deserves to be able to have a job or might be, say, working behind a deli counter at the grocery store? Are we making sure that these hiring initiatives are including them too? So I think that's something that gets thrown under the bus a lot with autism and disability and neurodiversity generally is there's still a place for you if you have an intellectual disability, if you have ADHD, dyslexia, something else as well. You know, you're exactly right. And, and honestly, um, I think a lot of parents are told, especially with um, kids with various disabilities, but a lot I, I've heard it happens with parents who have children with autism or on the autism spectrum, that their mm-hmm. children will be lucky to have friends or hold a minimum wage job. Um, you know, they won't be able to ever leave home, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. when I was actually working as a government contractor, I would try to include people that work with people with disabilities and have them come to our office and come to our distribution centers and say, what types of jobs could some of your you know candidates with with autism hold i mean there are some that are are more seriously impacted some that are higher on the spectrum you know there's all there's a there's there's a big diversity of of people on the autism spectrum and Mm -hmm. you know as you did i mean you're a perfect proof that you're probably higher on the autism spectrum and and look at you you're an attorney but there are others that that are more severely impacted that maybe don't have that ability to be an attorney but they can certainly have a job and i think that's where the employment uh community has to actually learn that there's a there's a place for everyone and i think that's the important Mm -hmm. thing how do you um it's interesting you've turned your eye or your autism diagnosis into a strength how did you Mm -hmm. do that or did did mom and dad help move that forward or was that just Haley Moss? Oh, mom and dad definitely helped move that forward. I, I don't take credit for everything because it's just not true that I did all the things, even though I do realize a lot comes from within and the effort that I put in, but I always think everything is a team effort. So it always takes a village to raise a child. But for me, I think with disability, it takes an even bigger village and maybe more support. And something that you mentioned that I thought was interesting that I wanted to maybe clarify a little bit more too is when you talk about being higher on the spectrum or different needs I always and that not everyone could be an attorney for instance but I don't disagree with you but I think there's something that gets thrown under the bus a lot or at least doesn't get talked about is that I still do have lots of struggles and things that you might not see perhaps in the office and I was talking about this at a conference the other week is yeah I can pass the bar exam I can write a motion I can write a contract I can go through data and sort through things and do all these things at work, but I have no idea how to use a hair straightener. My apartment looks like a human tornado came through it. (laughs) My apartment looks like a human tornado came through it. I can't figure out the spatial relationships of parking my car. I can't do all of these different things. And if 
I tell you that there have been towels in my dryer for three days on top of I can't park and all this other stuff, you might think, well, that person is quote unquote low functioning. No. So no, it's Haley. really all about what you say. Yeah, no, so I if think I just you're tell just... you all that stuff and not the <laughs> I have a job, I have a family, I have my family, I have my boyfriend, I have all this stuff, I tell you all that stuff and then I tell you like you you're like, Okay, that person is high functioning and I tell you I can't park, I can't do this, I can't do that you'll go, that person seems to check off a lot of low-functioning boxes, which is why I don't say I'm high or low-functioning at this point because it seems to be a day-in, day-out thing. Even just not being able to remember at one point, I'm like, I can barely remember to take medication, for instance, if I don't feel good, things like that. And it's really just functioning, I think, is such a spectrum as well. So it's how do we support people with different needs and what your needs are. So for me, my needs at work are definitely less than somebody else, for instance. Well, you know what? That, I, I I didn't mean to laugh, but when you said <laughs> leaving towels in your dryer, I, I've done that, and and at least you didn't leave them in your washer for three days. So, oh, um, I, oh, I've done that. Oh, okay. oh I've done that too. <laughs> well, I, we, we probably all me, have. To. <laughs> which reminds me now that I'm home, I got to see if I have a load of laundry that's still in the washer from like yesterday or the night before. I well, think the towels are done because I know I took the towels out last night. So that's a plus. You know what, Haley? Honest to God, that's exactly why people love you so much because you're just so real. And, and you know, <laughs> honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing because I literally was getting ready this morning thinking, oh, crap, I got to get those towels out of the dryer. So, you know what? You're not alone. Um, but but that is a really good point. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think maybe not being able to park your car or leaving towels in your dryer or whatever, that's mm-hmm. not going to necessarily impact your ability to mm-hmm. do your job, you know, but, but I think, exactly. but I, I appreciate the, the um, description that, that I needed actually about the autism spectrum. And, and to that point, you said in your presentation at our conference, when you um, said that if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've just met one person. So I think that kind of helped elaborate on that a little bit, but can you maybe go into a little bit more about my inappropriate, I guess, use of low functioning versus higher functioning? I mean, I, how, it's, th- not, it's not inappropriate. I mean, some people just identify with those things far more than others. And I think usually in the parent and medical community, they do. I just don't because I realize, oh, there are times it could be this lower functioning person based on what symptoms and what traits you're looking to describe at any given time that you could really separate out things and have a very different picture. That being said, every person on the spectrum is different. So as you know, the spectrum can affect affect or impact anybody. So it doesn't matter your race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, where in the world you're from, your socioeconomic status. So everybody on the spectrum is innately diverse in that way. Even getting to talk about women on the spectrum because we are diagnosed far less often is different. And every person presents differently. I know plenty of tech geniuses. I know artists. I'm pretty sure if I come to think of it, I could probably name somebody who's a hairstylist who, unlike me, knows how to use a straightener. So, <laughs> and then I meet people on the spectrum who don't remember, who can do all of these really complex things and then they can't clean their house either. Or then I meet other people on the spectrum who are just immaculate neat freaks. So you can see it really is individual based on everybody. And then as you know, you meet people who might be non-speaking or non-verbal or using like iPad apps to communicate that you really do see so many different things and you see different IQs, you see different ways of communication, you see different ways to express themselves, even just how 
our bodies move because a lot of people on the spectrum stim to get that sensory stimulation and what overloads them. So different things for, and different challenges for different people. So the things that might bother me are not the things that might bother somebody else. And the things that I struggle with might be easy for somebody else. So that same natural variation is just like you can't say all women are the same because we all have the same anatomy. You know, that, that's a really good point. And, and I like your um, discussion about the diverse community because it doesn't matter if you're a different race, different gender, different um, socioeconomic mm-hmm. status or anything. It, it is interesting. And I don't think people in general think about neurodiversity as just being another type of diversity. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think they they like to use the term autism or the name of a disease, diabetes, you know. And I really, mm-hmm. really like your tie of neurodiversity into the other um, protected classes and, and, you know, those diverse groups as well, because mm-hmm. that does make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm sure it will make a lot of sense to other HR professionals as well. Um, Absolutely. And I don't see neurodiversity and disability as two very separate things because I still think that disability is diversity. And I do think even having a neurological or developmental disability means that your brain works differently and it should be accepted under neurodiversity. So I fall into both camps of neurodiversity for me is both something to be accepted and it's also still disability. So it really is an interesting line to toe because there are people like, it's just some, it's not just a quirk. It, I think autism is very much a disability, especially if you do have more needs as well. Right. And like it is still a disability, but it's still also something that deserves to be accepted. And the strengths that we talk about as well deserve to be accepted and included within a workplace. Well, and I think Haley, um, and I think we've talked about this before, but mm-hmm. invisible disabilities, especially people, don't always know that you have, and it, it's exactly. it's a choice as to whether or not you want to let people know that you have that. With my disabilities, diabetes, they mm-hmm. dr- they just drill it into you at the very beginning of being diagnosed that you have to let people know just in case you have a problem because timing is everything as far as getting assistance. And so mm-hmm. I'm not as, as opposed to letting people know I have, have a disability, but mm-hmm. it is interesting um, whether or not you have that comfort factor you know, behind you and, and if you feel like you're going to be judged differently if you let people know you have mm-hmm. have a disability. And that to me is probably the most frustrating part of, of you know, seeing what people with disabilities go through. Um, exactly. I meet other attorneys with different disabilities too. And I know if you have a physical disability, I feel like it's, you don't have that luxury, so to speak, or privilege of will I disclose, will I not? I mean, for me, I feel like disclosure is an automatic yes just in case something happens. And also because I have no shame in who I am and I don't, <laughs> and I also just want wherever I am to accept me for who I am. Exactly. And yep. I've met, I've met an attorney not too long ago who I believe had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and her thing is she'd commute to court and stuff in sneakers because of her joints. And the minute she'd get to work or anything, she'd put on obviously different shoes. I do the same thing because I hate wearing heels all day <laughs> and I, and I can be found often in flip flops or sandals, but Luckily, where I am is cool with that sometimes. So, but <laughs> well, this attorney was telling me about the sneakers, and then she's like, and I'm like, do they know? And she's like, I don't feel like I'm ready to tell them yet. And I was like, okay. So yeah. I realized that it's very different for everybody, and your journey to disability acceptance, depending on who your employer is, makes things different as well. So it's all about doing your individual thing. Just because you don't want to tell someone doesn't make your disability any less valid. 
Well, you're exactly right. And, and I, I like what you said about just employers, depending on what employer you work for and what their willingness to accept whatever difference you bring mm-hmm. to the workplace. Um, I, I actually am, am wearing a dress for the first time today after six weeks in a wheelchair myself. And so I'm feeling pretty mm-hmm. good, but I, I put flats on thinking <laughs> it's going to be a long time before I wear heels because <laughs> I, mm-hmm. you know, had my, my broken leg and, and the whole nine yards. And, uh-huh. and I'll tell you what, I, you know, I fortunately direct employers. I mean, we, we have a pretty relaxed uh, work or dress code around here and, you know, I don't have to worry about it, but I'm going to, be going out to do some public speaking and I'm going to be wearing flats, you know, and so um, mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things that, you know, I hope people accept that, but, um, Absolutely. you know, you have, I have to. My, I have my little, I accommodate myself with shoes often enough. I mean, what I usually do is I commute and stuff in like flip-flops or whatever because it's more comfortable or sandals in the morning. It's mm-hmm. always hot in Florida, so it's like a non-issue. <laughs> and when I, whenever I have to talk to somebody, like whether it's another lawyer or one of my supervisors or the partners or anything like that I'll change my shoes to go walk down the hall oh. <laughs> that's a good so idea then I can have comfortable, so then I can have comfortable shoes all day then when I realize I have to interact with other people especially somebody who might be more senior than me I will put on flats or I'll put on the heels just for that couple minute interaction and then when I'm back at my desk all all, all bets are off <laughs> well I think maybe I'll, I'll uh, clean out my my closet and bring a a, a group of or pair several pairs of shoes to my office and <laughs> my my oh, house I, would look a whole lot or my closet would look a lot <laughs> a lot nicer <laughs> oh I, I have a pair of heels that sits in my office no matter what along with an extra dress and another blazer and like things <laughs> like that just in case it's like oh if i get told hey we would like to create a company after this deposition hearing something i have something that's court appropriate at all times <laughs> well that's, that's good i feel like you just know, i I feel like you just never know what's going to happen. So I always try to keep something court appropriate inside my office. And I also just seem to collect clothes at work, which I don't really enjoy because one, my closets are both overflowing. And two, I often like to exercise after work. So I'll change at the office. I think office bathrooms in my office, when the doors are closed, they're a lot nicer to change in than a gym bathroom. So then I end up with work clothes. So then I end up with work clothes in my office. because I don't bring them home. I don't remember to bring them home after I change into my gym clothes before I leave. So I end up having a collection of clothes at work. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Haley, you know what? I think um, we're all learning that that you're not much different than than any of the rest of us. Um, you know, I, I have to except some except some of those clothes have probably been sitting there for a couple months. So. Well, you know what? Uh, well, if they're dirty, that's one thing. But <laughs> if they're clean, that's <laughs> and I, I I have a big bag to bring home from work because I keep I have one of those like reusable tote bag things that's like kind of large that they sell for like a dollar at like Marshall's because I use those to like bring stuff home because I don't have a car and it makes my life easier and I'm pretty sure there's all sorts of fun trinkets and things in there so I actually have stuff from B19 in there because I always brought my souvenirs to show everyone at work I have like all that stuff in there I have a couple pairs I think I have two pairs of shoes in there and like I need to bring this home and go through it, and I just never got around to it. <laughs> well, Haley, I'll tell you what, you're not any different than me, so <laughs> so I, I, I completely understand I, I, what you're talking about. So I see it hiding under my desk like every day, and I say, today's the day I'm going to bring it home, and then, you know. You walk out, and you forget it. Been, I get that. <laughs> it's been a couple months now, so. Well, you know what? I, let, I, tr- I tried. Let's <laughs> go with that. I tried. Oh, well, that, that works. That works. Like, it's, like, it sits in my brain for a minute, and then, because executive functioning makes my short-term memory kind of not the best, I'll be like, yep, I'm going to bring that home today. That goes out the window, like, 
30 seconds later and then I don't think about it until another three days later. And then I'm like, today's the day I'm going to bring it home. And here we are a couple months later and it did not come home. Oh, well, you had more important things to do. So it's I, okay. Yes. Yesterday I had to drop something off at UPS and I made a big point. Like I got to drop this off at UPS. I got this like 30 day return policy. As you know, I love shopping. We could be here. We could have a whole other episode of DE Talk talking about our love of shopping together. That would work. But I'm sure it would. But I have to drop off this return. I was going to do it yesterday. Was about to put it in my bag, and then I ran out of the house. And I'm like, oh my god, it's nearly nine o'clock in the morning. I got to get to work. I'm going to be late. And here I am right now, sitting at my kitchen table. And you know what's staring me right in the face? The UPS package. And I'm thinking about all the things we're going to be talking about, and excited to have this conversation. At the same time, my brain goes, Haley. You got to go to UPS today. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'll remind you at the end of our at the end of our <laughs> session. So, <laughs> and then so, I'll probably text you that I made it to UPS. Exactly. <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> that'll work. So, listen. I wanted to ask you. You have actually two undergraduate degrees. You've got a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a Bachelor Bachelor of Arts in Criminology, both from the University of Florida. And um, my daughter, my younger daughter, has a master's degree from the University of Florida. So go Gators. Go Gators. Exactly, exactly. So both of those degrees um, kind of, especially in the criminology and and you're working with terrorism now and in the legal field, um, it kind of gave you some, I think, focus on maybe on going to law school. Did you always want to be an attorney or was there any other career that you thought about? as you were growing up? I, spoiler alert, I did not always want to be an attorney. <laughs> Double spoiler alert, I did not think I would be doing anti-terrorism work. So <laughs> that's how the story ends. So originally, once upon a time, I thought I was going to be a doctor. And I thought the coolest thing in the world would have been to be a psychiatrist. I thought, what, what better thing to do than, you know, get to help other people with their problems. I love brain stuff. I love learning about mental illness and disorder and even understanding disability like we have as well. Like I thought psychiatry was really cool as a field. And I got to college in the first six weeks I was in chemistry and I was like, Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure anyone who's ever started in pre-med, which is like 90% of people, I'm sure that's a made up statistic too, but it's fine. (laughs) Is that we all go through this pre-med idea. We're going to be pre-med. We're going to be doctors. And then you take chemistry, physics, whatever class it is. And you go, I don't think so. Changed my mind. <laughs> Basically. And then at orientation, I thought I was going to go to school for graphic design. And then I realized the graphic design buildings were far enough off campus. I didn't feel comfortable. So that threw that plan out the window too. I stuck with my original major of psychology though, which I was pretty proud of myself for not being that indecisive on. <laughs> and I stuck with psychology because I thought it was really interesting to understand people. And when you naturally don't understand social cues and things like that because of your disability, what better way than to try to understand it than knowing everything about how the brain functions? Of course, at this point in my life, I can tell you, understanding about neurotransmitters does not mean I understand what people are thinking and feeling. <laughs> yeah, I get that. And, I get that. And that facial, and that facial expressions still don't tell the full story. <laughs> that you can still smile and be unhappy. Well, that's that's definitely true. I, I, I'm I'm one of those people that you can look at my face and know if I'm I'm happy or upset. But you're right. Oh me you, too. Oh, you... oh me. Oh me too. <laughs> Except I'm pretty sure. So I had some really difficult assignment at work the other day, and I'm pretty sure I was giving this lawyer like the death stare about it because <laughs> good for like, you. <laughs> Is it not? And I, I said I don't know if she picked up on it. And I'm like, 
I'm, I'm like, at least I'm mentally giving you the death stare if I'm not physically giving it to you. Because I'm like, cause like is this done yet? Is this done yet? This is a two-person thing to do, and I'm doing it alone. But okay. And I got sidetracked with something else because when certain other lawyers want something that takes priority, then, you know, it's like, how do I shuffle through all this? Well, I, I think... So it's all a learning thing. Well, how do you think that your... Um abilities your disability i i really i personally don't like the word disability i have a condition Mm -hmm. i live with um but how Mm -hmm. do you think um your autism has helped you in your career i i know that it it was funny um watching you up on stage in our general session at our annual meeting I mean, you brought the house down when you answered <laughs> Craig Lean's question about self-identification. I thought we were all going to lose it. We we were dying laughing, and it was the best response ever. Um, Meanwhile, the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, I probably shouldn't have said that. You know what? No. I Honestly, Haley, for those of you who obviously don't know what we're talking about, he asked about self-identification because for government contractors are required to um, request self-identification of those with a disability and your choices are yes no and I choose not to disclose and she said why do you why do you want to know and then he said well you can always say you know I choose not to answer and she said which means yes I have one but I don't want to tell you and I thought the house Basically, was, it's true well exactly and we've been saying it is, that it is, I mean yes I do have a disability I just don't want to talk about it it's like exactly exactly it's like, answer, it's like if you're gonna put that on the thing just put yes and no I, I know. Or if you say, or if you say, prefer not to disclose and just leave it at that, even though that definitely means I want, I do, and I don't want to tell you. Especially in a yes or no question compared to like those surveys ask what your current income is, and they have like 50 different brackets yeah. on there. And then there's a prefer not to disclose. It's because I make it, way more than that or way less than that. <laughs> or I just don't want to tell you. Right, right, exactly. But, is, so, like, in, in that case, saying prefer not to disclose doesn't tell you anything. But in disability, prefer not to disclose literally means I have a disability, but I don't want to talk about it. Well, Haley, I think I honestly do believe that your answer was, was spot on. And I think not everyone feels comfortable in telling the director of the OFCCP something like that. And I think the fact that you knew him. I guess and- we could say that it's just strange that I just don't remember to shut off the social filter. So yeah. a lot of people on the spectrum do a lot of masking and trying to pass because there are a lot of social norms and rules we need to follow because of how neurotypical society is developed. And sometimes I, I notice this, I slip or I'm, I refuse to do the masking thing. I'm like, you know what? I am who I am. I can make mistakes. It's okay not to follow every rule perfectly and it's okay to be who I am. And that's one of those moments where I didn't quite stick the script of, okay, I probably need to show this person a little bit more respect. I need to answer in a certain way and have this dialogue in such a manner because he's here, not as my friend, but as someone in a position of authority and I respect authority. And then I'm th- when I look back and I'm like, uh Oh, did I not, respect authority did I not respect this older wiser person you know what? and then I'm like I and then I'm like I was just answering the question as honestly as I humanly could exactly and you know what Haley I think you you did a lot with that response and I know Craig he I mean and I, I don't know him as well as you do certainly but I don't think he was offended by that at all he laughed he he took it well and I think it's important for for people to hear you say that because 
he knows you. He also understands autism, and he he got it, and and it was a, mm-hmm. a learning opportunity for him. And I think he took it as that. So, one thing that that I really want to to ask you about, um, you've been called a lot of things, a, an inspiration, and we're going to talk about that in a second. An inspiration, mm-hmm. a trailblazer, an advocate, a champion, a role model. You know, all positive um, attributes in. At our annual meeting in your in your um, concurrent session, you commented about not wanting to be called an inspiration. Can you explain? Mm-hmm. Can you explain why and explain how you feel about that? Okay, so inspiration is one of those really interesting topics that I think people with disabilities hear that they're an inspiration all the time. And I think about inspiration generally. How many times have you said? about people without disabilities that they're inspiring. And it's very, very little when you come to think of it. And when I, when you ask people why someone with disabilities is inspiring, they usually don't have a good answer for you. It's just that's the natural thing. Or they think, at least I'm not that person. At least I don't have an insulin pump. At least I don't have sensory overload. At least I don't have seizures. At least I'm not that person. And usually the inspiration story, at least in popular media that we see, falls into this category that a lot of people with disabilities call inspiration porn and they use that very deliberately because their stories designed to make non-disabled people feel good about themselves so when i talk about inspiration porn and inspirational stories like that my quintessential example is the high school quarterback taking the kid with down syndrome to prom <laughs> and the story 99 percent of the time focuses on what a good person the quarterback is and the, the story won't talk as much about the person with down syndrome who really just wanted to go to prom it didn't matter that the quarterback was the person who took them to prom. It was really that here's the same person trying to live their best life, do what is normal and expected for someone of that age to do of going to prom or playing a sport or whatever that thing is. It doesn't make you an inspiration for doing that. And I think a lot about this is there's plenty of things about people with disabilities that I find inspiring. I remember when one of my friends taught me, hey, you know, there's an app that you can get to get somebody to clean your house. That inspired me. It inspires me when people are, get up in the morning because they're morning people because I'm not a morning person. <laughs> so I think inspiration gets used very loosely with disability and not always for the right reason. So I would tell people, like, if you're inspired by something, I hope it's for the right reason. So if it's because you want to do better for your organization, the people around you, or the fact that I'm motivated or something like that, if that inspires you, great. Be inspired for the right reason. That's kind of where I come from because I think it's really weird when it's you're an inspiration because once upon a time you were nonverbal and now you're an attorney. I just made the best of the cards that's been dealt. I don't know what it's like not to be autistic. I think disability is one of those things that when it's you, it's your li- it's still your life. It's not just an inspirational story to make other people feel good about themselves. I think that's kind of the best way to describe how I feel about inspiration because I'm okay with it. If people tell me I'm an inspiration, I'm still going to nod and say thank you. And if I really want to dig deeper on it, I might ask, why do you feel that way? And that's when the good answers come out because people do, I think, mean it in such a way that you do want to be inspired and it isn't just your story. Because if it's your story, it's like, but this is just my life. This isn't a story. That, that, that's exactly right. That we right. can sum up a story. Exactly. And, like, and I think about my story and I'll tell my story and people will start clapping when I tell them I passed the bar and became an attorney. And I say, if I took autism out of this equation... And your headline was, woman passes bar exam, gets sworn in as an attorney. Are you going to be clapping? Are you going to be saying I'm an inspiration? Well, you know what? my, or- and, and my then order- everybody falls kind of silent there. 
because as much as I hate to admit it, there's like 110,000 lawyers or something in Florida. Well, you know what, Haley, my own daughter, my older daughter's an attorney. She went to Miami of Ohio and then to DePaul in Chicago for law school. And Mm -hmm. I know how difficult law school is just from watching my my brilliant mm-hmm. daughter try to <laughs> try to figure out how to get through it and and she's successful today mm-hmm. but i know i know what your parents went through watching you go through it too so um it's it's a oh tough it's definitely it definitely is tough and it, it, i think it's inspiring when people do make it through law school too and i think that what's inspiring is the amount of obstacles that you have to overcome especially when law school is already hard enough and getting there is hard enough and that there's other obstacles in your path because you are a person with a disability and getting through all that is what's really awesome. And then at the same time, I get upset about it because those obstacles shouldn't exist. You say that the obstacles shouldn't be there? Yeah, that those obstacles that people with disabilities face in oh, exactly. academia and all these places shouldn't exist. I shouldn't have to worry about that. It, well, I always say that the best day that will come, and as much as I love getting to have these conversations with you and everybody that I get to talk about disability and autism with, the best days are when we don't have to do this. Because... <laughs> We are so accepting that we understand that at times, and I said this at that at Dean as well, it was the social model of disability, is that the society around us could be more disabling than the actual diagnosis or disability. Exactly. Well, let me ask you this. What advice can you offer employers who want to recruit neuro, neurodiverse candidates? What can an, an I, employer do? I think what's important is to not to leave your leave your biases at the door number one so i think a lot of employers and people have preconceived notions of what neurodiverse people and people on the autism spectrum are like and will do and based on stereotypes media and all that so even look at what's on tv your normal autistic person or character is usually some kind of tech genius some kind of stem genius usually a dude really awkward <laughs> it's all these boxes that sounds like CSM checklist almost. And not every person on the spectrum is going to look or sound like the DSM checklist. I still think it's funny that at times it's assumed at work that I'm a tech genius. And as you know, I'm a lawyer, not exactly a tech genius. But you have to kind of make the best of those stereotypes. So I tell people leave their biases at the door and also to focus on the strengths rather than the perceived weaknesses and disabilities. So if we're thinking this person might not be super social, but they're applying for a role that doesn't require a lot of social skills, it, does, it shouldn't matter. And also, so often, I know in interviews as well, and I'm sure you might have this experience too, is we judge people based on things like eye contact. Things that what? Eye contact. Oh, eye contact. So, oh, yeah, you're exactly right. And for me, eye contact is very uncomfortable and unnatural, as it is for many people on the spectrum. And when I'm asked about eye contact, I'll tell people, do you want me to look at you and look like I'm paying attention or do you want me to actually pay attention to what you're saying? <laughs> While based on how society is set up, it's assumed that if you're not looking at somebody, you're not trustworthy. That's interesting. You know, you're because a lot of studies and stuff will show that managers and things see eye contact as a sign of trustworthiness. Well, I think you've hit on a really important point. And again, that's just the lack of education that, that mm-hmm. everybody has about various types of disabilities and especially hiring managers, recruiters, you know, and, and obviously they can't be expected to know everything about everything, but, oh no, you know, but, but eye contact, I remember you and I talking about that at Deem and I, I have to admit, I didn't realize that, you know, some people with autism 
have a problem with eye contact or the sensory perception mm-hmm. issues. And, and, you know, that's just something that mm-hmm. people, number one, people need to be open to learning. But mm-hmm. um, I like your comment about leaving your biases at the door, you know, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a, a big fan of asking a question if I, if something is, is kind of unusual or whatever, I, or if someone has a disability and, mm-hmm. and they're in a wheelchair and, and you think you want to help them, but you know, you always need to ask first, do they want help? Absolutely. Do they need help? And, and I think um, the assumptions that people make are the, are the big problems, I think, especially in the workplace. Absolutely. I think the assumptions definitely do get the best of us. And I don't fault people for making assumptions or stereotyping because it is a natural thing that we do. It's very easy. And it's also how our brains are wired is to put people and things in boxes. Mm-hmm. I know it's not always the best that we do it. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. And we all have our biases and we all have our preconceived notions of things. And that's okay. It's just recognizing it and realizing that we too could do better. Exactly. What is one thing that you would like people to know about the neurodiverse community? That I think what I want people to know is that we are here. We're ready to work. We want to work. We can add a lot of value. I know if you look at certain studies and certain pilot programs that have hired neurodiverse workers, that it saves companies money. They've driven inner innovation. So having neurodiverse teams, so having autistic people, neuro, neurotypical people, people with other different brain function, that having a team that is completely neurodiverse does help drive innovation and drive things forward. So you need all kinds of minds, I think, to solve the problems of today and tomorrow. You need all kinds of minds to make things happen. I mean, look at history. A lot of the great people that have moved our society forward were probably some form of neurodivergent. So it's really an interesting thing to see it from that perspective is we can be moving things forward. And there are things that some people are great at and things that not everyone is great at. And when I think about neurodiverse hiring and stuff that I want to see too, is I don't want to see where people get pegged into boxes of certain types of roles. So a lot of the companies that are really into neurodiversity are in the tech, tech sphere or in accounting, in finance, all these very science, technology, engineering, and math fields. And then I want to ask, well, what about, say, for instance, if I wanted to get go through a neurodiverse hiring program, what if you wanted corporate counsel? What if you wanted someone in the marketing department? Because I do marketing at my law firm as well. <laughs> and that's when sometimes they have to think on their feet for a better answer. Or if, what if we wanted to join the HR department? Because I think one day having neurodiverse people in an HR department will help make sure that inclusion happens on all levels. And even when I looked at certain law firm jobs at one point and looked for summer associate positions, I realized they weren't even including disability in their definition of diversity. So it's how do we get this moving forward in such a way? Well, you know, it's, (laughs) you, you actually just gave me a whole lot of things to think about. I, I honestly, have said here at direct employers over the last couple of years we need to try and help our members find people with disabilities to work you know to mm-hmm. i mean we, we need to get that group of individuals where the rate of unemployment is the highest of of anybody um mm-hmm. and and interestingly enough you you hit a very important point in that people that or consumers, I should say, that um, support various companies, 
do so more with companies that that treat people with individual or treat individuals with disabilities as mm-hmm. you know a positive attribute at their organization and you know we talk about mm-hmm. um you know showing your culture at your various company letting letting them know that you welcome people with disabilities and like you just said the companies that that do a lot of work with the neurodiverse community so obviously those companies are well known and like mm-hmm. i said earlier there's a place for everyone depending on whatever Absolutely. type of work you do you um are not only an attorney you're an artist you're an author <laughs> i mean you you pretty much do it all haley um i you wear me out when i think about <laughs> everything I, I wear like, my i wear my i wear myself out and people ask me all the time like how do you do it do you ever take time to rest i'm trying and i'm still oddly enough i'm still behind on stuff and what? and i feel i feel like there are bad people like because as much as I love what I do in disability world and I love getting to have the conversation that we do, people tend to forget that I actually practice law full time. <laughs> oh yeah. That, that, that other job that lets That's you go shopping, right? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's kind of a thing, but I actually practice law. So, <laughs> well, let me ask you this. What you, you kind of talked about marketing and some of those things. Um, what other strengths and skill sets do members of the neurodiverse community bring to the workforce? I think it really depends on the role, but I think a lot of us are very detail oriented. We really do want to make you happy. Like I know I'm a people pleaser, so I want to do the best for everybody. I want to be fair to everybody. I want to be able to help make things the best they could be. And I always have ideas. So I was the one who got our firm on LinkedIn. I had the whole strategy rolled out. I'm the one who uh, obviously a lot of the posts need to get approved by the the, the powers that be. But I still have the idea of, okay, we got a new attorney in the firm. I want to welcome them properly. I run the website. So I do all sorts of other little things in that Jeez. regard, too, because I find it fun. And usually they're the jobs that a lot, at least in my firm, that a lot of the attorneys don't really want because it's complicated or it just takes time or you have to interact with everybody for it. And I'm also like, yeah, send me an email if you want something updated on your profile or you want this updated, it'll get done ASAP because I think it's fun. <laughs> so... And I also like wearing a lot of different hats because I also realize this is how I can continue to grow. And also for me, it's with neurodiversity, and this is something that I got to talk about with another employer. We talked about it's still having these neurodivergent candidates and new new employees. They're still part of the company culture. They're not just part of some pilot program. They are full-fledged employees of wherever you're working. My job title is exactly the same as every other associate. And for those of you who went to Dean, you know that I went to being with another associate from my firm, Mm -hmm. we have the exact same job title. Our responsibilities are a little different because we work on different cases, but we have the same job title and things like that is that I'm not special, so to speak, because I'm neurodiverse and that I'm part of some other program, for instance. Well, you know what, Haley, I I think, again, a lot of employers, you know, they they talk about accommodations and they all think that they're too expensive or or whatever. And actually, accommodations are very, very inexpensive. What accommodations do you think um, employers can provide to create a better working environment? You're right that most accommodations don't really cost that much. I believe the average accommodation, according to DOL, is about $500. Exactly. and most of them cost nothing. So for me, things that make my life a little easier that I don't usually have to ask for, which is really nice, is even sometimes being able to listen to music while I work to drown out background noise of when my coworkers are talking and I need to focus. Or I can close my door or I can go for a walk if I need to to take a break or because I feel overwhelmed. Or I could tell someone 
hey, you're giving me a lot of things to digest at once. So one of the associates that I'm working with, we're working on this really extensive task and she gives so much information at once. And she realizes that it overwhelms anybody. And for me, I'm like, you're right. It's really overwhelming. Can we break this down into a couple different discussions so then I can at least focus and get something done? Because if you say too much, it's all just going to go mumbo jumbo in my head. And then why did we just have this conversation? Right. right. And, and it's even, and I remember the first time I had to write a motion, I was told go write this motion and I had no clue what I was doing. And then I remember going back and I stared at the screen for about an hour because I had no clue what to do. And obviously you can't really bill your clients for just staring there for an hour. So well, you know what? I remember going back and saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't quite understand this. Can we break this down somehow? And then it was taught in such a way of, okay, start with the statement of facts. Then go, then we'll do that first to have that done first. And then we'll do the argument and then we'll do this and then we'll do that. But so it was know, broken down in such a way that I was able to get the complete motion, but it was due in little chunks. So then I was able to get it done. And now when I'm told to go write a motion, I know how to do it because it was broken down for me in you such know what, a way. Haley, you know what, Haley? I, I honestly can't believe that that's not good information for any new associate. You know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. obviously you you had the, the guts to ask for it. But mm-hmm. um, really, that's good knowledge for any new associate to have you know and any good any good teacher should should teach you how Mm -hmm. to do it in a way that's understandable to any entry-level employee you know so absolutely and absolutely i'm a fan of curb cut effects so that's the whole thing with the ada with when the sidewalks are changed it helps impact everybody and i'm a fan of that because i think if we're able to help the most marginalized people in the office somehow or make something more accessible it ends up benefiting everybody so exactly. if even an employee manual is written in plain language because you have somebody who has an intellectual disability who might not understand all the technical mumbo jumbo and jargon. If you have it broken down in such a way that's plain language, it benefits everybody, not just the person with an intellectual disability. Exactly. exactly. So I'm a fan. If you can help the most marginalized people in your workplace, you end up benefiting everybody. Even if it's having, I know some workplaces that I've been to in their attempts to be inclusive as could be, will be fragrance-free because you might have allergies or you might have increased sensitivity or something else that perfumes or cologne or whatever might affect your sensory processing or other allergies or other conditions. So in those workplaces, it's okay. And then you realize, oh, this benefits everyone because some of us just really don't like putting perfume on in the morning. <laughs> well, and, and uh, people with allergies have, have problems with that as well. So there's all exactly. sorts of... Exactly. So it ends up benefiting everybody. So that's how I see a lot of accommodation and a lot of things that, on a general level. Even for me, sometimes I realize, and I realize this when I speak a lot, is fluorescent lighting could just give me a headache. Well, you know it's what? Just, <laughs> we have a it's new... It's one of those things that's very hard to handle, I think, sensory-wise. And then I realized a lot of people get migraines. A lot of people might hear the hum of the lights like I do, and it drives me nuts. And you know what? And then I realized, oh, we went to LEDs. It's more energy efficient. It's more this. It ends up benefiting (laughs) everyone in more ways than one. Well, I think a lot of accommodation ends up benefiting everybody. We, we actually have a new office here, Haley, and you know that there's an open invitation for you to join us, but we have Mm -hmm. a lot of those accommodations that are just built in um with the lighting the the lake mm-hmm. that people can walk around the you know the white mm-hmm. noise we have a lot of people listen to music we have closed doors the whole nine yards mm-hmm. and that 
that's something that is beneficial. To, we have high-low desks. I mean, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's definitely a company culture thing, too, because in a lot of places that are more traditional, you might not see that. Oh, exactly, or, or in older offices and that sort of thing. Listen, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to just ask you a couple more, well, actually kind of two questions in one. Um, how, okay. do you, how do you see the hiring landscape in the future for neurodiverse job seekers? And what is your one last piece of advice to anyone who is listening regarding the neurodiverse community? I see the job landscape for neurodiverse people changing for the better as time goes on. So we are slowly closing this employment gap. So I've seen statistics quoting as high as about 85% of people on the spectrum is unemployed. I've seen all sorts of different statistics, but generally people with disabilities are underemployed or unemployed, which is a problem. But I see this changing because as we are bringing more neurodiverse people into our companies, Think about someone like me. I'm 25 years old right now. Is that in <laughs> 10 years that. or so, in 10 years or so, maybe one day I'll be partner at a firm or I'll be, so, or someone like me might be higher up on a team or they might get promoted a couple of times. And then it's our responsibility or something that we might want to do is to be able to give back. So I think if I'm hypothetically a partner somewhere, I might want to bring in neurodiverse attorneys that someone else who might be in a bigger corporation that's in HR that's neurodiverse or neurodivergent might want to bring in other people like them into the teams too. So then, oh, and then you see neurodiverse hiring changing that it's a for neurodiverse people by neurodiverse people type situation. So I think that it's going to change for the better, especially as the current generation moves up the chain, because right now it's a bunch of neurotypical people doing this for the neurodiverse community. But I think in due time, eventually it's going to be, everybody working alongside each other or neurodiverse people doing it for other people who are neurodiverse. So I think it's really going to keep changing and it's going to change for the better. So I think this gap is going to close. Well, I will tell you one thing, Haley, I don't think, or I mean, I I do think that you have, have made us all realize that the neurodiverse community isn't that much different than the rest of us you know i mean as far as as, (laughs) well people well exactly and and some of the things that you're afraid of there's a lot of people who are not on the autism spectrum that have the same fears or have the same issues or you know you you have a car accident you can have traumatic brain or i mean i'm sorry post-traumatic stress and and you know there's Mm -hmm. all sorts of things that people exactly can can be affected by and i think you've helped us realize that today um Mm -hmm. i i have to tell you Haley, I, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I want everyone else to know that you can connect with Haley in person at our upcoming 2020 annual meeting and conference in Fort Worth, Texas. And you can also follow her life on Instagram at Haley Moss Art, A-R-T. We'll also link all of this in a short blog post as well, so you can grab all of the links later. Um, Haley, again, thank you so much for for being part of our first DE Talk podcast, and I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We will actually be doing monthly podcasts to start interviewing members, partners, other industry experts, um, all sorts of folks. And I invite all of you to subscribe through either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you will receive regular notifications of new episodes. So with that, Haley, I'm going to um, say goodbye and thank you again. You know, I love talking with you and I'm sure we'll talk later today. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Candy. Thanks again, Haley. Talk soon. Thank you.